Dr. Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. It's the Paul Leslie Hour coming at you. Hello and welcome, folks. Always honored to have you here. I've got another episode of the series within the Paul Leslie Hour. It's still Billy Joel to me. Jason Burge and I are about to get into our conversation slash review slash interview about The Stranger. It's a good one. If you want to support the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour, you can do so. Very simple. Just go to thepaullesley.com. You're going to see that button that says support the show. Any amount, $2, $3, it helps these interviews and reviews to be heard. What do you think of that new theme song? I've really been enjoying this. That is John Primerano. He recorded and performed that Karina Karina, the traditional blues folk song. Check him out at johnprimerano.com. The Stranger is, in fact, probably the most famous Billy Joel album. So I would be curious to know from you what you think of the album and perhaps what your favorite song from The Stranger might be. Let's get into the show. Hey, it's me. This is the Paul Leslie Hour, and this is the ongoing series. It's still Billy Joel to me. This is a chronological series within the show where we review all of the studio albums of singer-songwriter, recording artist Billy Joel. This is It's Still Billy Joel to Me, Volume 5, The Stranger. This is the fifth installment in a series where we can take the phone off the hook and disappear for a while. We're going to be looking into the album The Stranger. As I said, this is the fifth Billy Joel studio album. The producer on this album was the late, great Phil Ramone, one of the best record men in the history of music. And this was the first in a run of six total albums produced by Ramon, the lion's share of Billy Joel's catalog. Recorded and released in 1977, The Stranger is nine songs with a runtime of about 42 minutes. I'd like to introduce my co-reviewer, Jason Burge. He's no stranger to reviewing music or movies. He's reviewed more than 100 albums and counting. In my personal opinion, Jason Burge is the Van Gogh of reviewers. I didn't say like, I said is the Van Gogh of reviewers. He's just that captivating, and I'm so glad to have him back yet again. Jason, thank you for joining me. (laughs) Thank you very much, Paul, and again for the great introduction. I'm just telling it like it is. So this is the breakthrough album for Billy Joel. He had four albums before this, but The Stranger is the one that really put him on the map in a very big way. Could you define why you believe The Stranger has resonated with so many people? Well, you know, the easy answer is that it's full of great songs that a lot of people know. He covers a lot of territory stylistically and thematically, and there are a lot of songs here that sound unique, which is to say they don't sound like he's copying a style anymore. He's making his own. On previous albums, it was clear that he was attempting country or rock or a standard or a ballad, some of which were, you know, designed to be, you know, sung by other singers and fit neatly into a genre. 
But what category does the stranger or scenes or moving out fall into? To me, they're just Billy Joel songs. And this won't be the first time I quote Chuck Klosterman in this interview. But something Chuck said comes to mind when he was talking about Mamma Mia, the ABBA musical. And the distinction of a description that he heard that it was all ABBA music. Not that it was all ABBA music. But the emphasis was on ABBA. And I think it's the same thing here with Billy Joel and why Billy Joel also has a musical. Because nothing sounds like Billy Joel music. And this is where I think on this album is where that stylistic distinction becomes most noticeable. And it's probably not coincidental that the musical is called Moving Out, the first song on this album. This is the album where he stopped being Bill Joel, Scrappy Troubadour from the Bronx, and became Billy Joel, the legend whose music will be played long after he and we are gone. And and what what do you think is, is such a big change here? Well, to take uh, after some of what you said, it is about the fact that these songs are of such high quality. There's really not one miss. There's no skip in the whole album. Each song flows into one another, creating kind of an experience. I would also say The Stranger doesn't sound like anything else. Like you were saying, I think on the last album, on Turnstiles, he found his sound. With The Stranger, I think he perfected his sound. The songs are universal in scope in that you can relate to almost all of them, but they're not commonplace at all. They're very different. They don't sound like other songs. I mean, scenes from an Italian restaurant, I don't know of any song that's like that. And the different things that that they did in this album in terms of experimenting. You can tell Phil Ramone was the kind of guy who said, no, let's try that. No, really, really, let's do that. Like the kind of accordion sound in Vienna. A lot of producers would say, no, you don't want to do that. It's a song about Vienna and you, you want to give this European sound to it. That could be cheesy, but under the guidance of Phil Ramone, they managed to make everything sound really cool. And every single note of The Stranger, everything feels like it's exactly where it's supposed to be. <laughs> it's, just, it's just it's just one of those albums that, you know, it's, it's the best-selling. I think that this is true, that it's the best-selling album from Columbia Records, that label, ever. I'm not surprised. And it's, you know, you bring up Vienna. I think Vienna is interesting because, you know, it didn't show up for a while in heavy rotation. I didn't hear it until many, many years after it was released. It's become a bit of a staple now. It's become comments popped back up in um, some television shows and movies. But he didn't play it much until the aughts live. And, you know, I, I started hearing a little bit about this song. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Why didn't I know it? Um, I guess he wrote it after visiting his estranged father, who I did not know this, but had moved to Europe when Billy was young. And, you know, Billy had, you know, witnessed some older, very old people working. And his dad sort of told him, you know, that's very positive here. We sort of keep people relevant longer than the United States. It seems to be a song about aging and self-management, nostalgia and distant hope. Billy's also said that, you know, it may have been subliminally about his father. There's a lot going on in this song. There's a lot to unpack. It's not immediately obvious what it's about. So, you know, and, and Phil Ramone said that it was the one Billy Joel song that aspiring songwriters most asked him about. So, Paul, what is 
Vienna mean to you? I love questions like this. Vienna is, first of all, it's one of the best songs on the album, and that's that's saying a lot because it's such a great, great bunch of songs. My personal interpretation, I believe the song is about not realizing that your life experience is happening now, and it's really foolish if you're lusting for the future. It's happening to you right now. And I think in the, in the pursuit of his music, I think it was maybe a realization, as you were mentioning, uh, I think Billy Joel said that it was a, the main thing he saw was the elderly woman sweeping on the street. And he was pursuing hardcore, the music industry. And I, I, I think he maybe didn't understand the idea in that point of his life of taking the phone off the hook and disappearing for a while. It was go, go, go. And it's funny because <laughs> when I was listening for the first time to The Stranger, not for the first time ever, but for the purposes of doing this review, I was watching the classic movie Ferris Bueller, <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and it's kind of like the message of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You know, you might you might miss life if you don't look around. And if your dreams don't come true, you can still enjoy that someone can be viewed as being less of a success and still have a much richer and deeper existence. So it's a very profound song. What, what about you? What does Vienna mean to you? What's your interpretation? No, I think that's accurate. I, I've always tried to, I, I think from one of the earliest times I heard it, a friend had told me, our, our friend Jabo had told me that he said it was about his father. And so every time I've listened to the song, I've tried to figure out subliminally the message he was trying to impart. If it was, you know, if it was seeing his life through a, a younger lens and here's this guy who took off for Vienna, you know, Billy was very young. And so this Vienna waits for you idea, you know, is maybe, you know, whatever you're, whatever you're running off toward, it'll still be there. Because I can't help but wonder when he says subliminally, does he mean, you know, his dad took off to Vienna, I guess, to his next phase or maybe his last phase very early. I can't help but wonder if he was saying, you know, you don't have to retire while you still have an eight-year-old son. <laughs> so I I don't know. That That's, I guess, I've always tried to figure it out through that lens. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not positive, but. Interesting. You know, it occurs to me, I think I've heard every song from this album, The Stranger, on FM radio, with the exception of Everybody Has a Dream. I've heard all of them. I, I have heard Get It Right the first time the least. I, I can only recall hearing that a couple of times, but nonetheless, it's it's made some FM playlists. So you could make the argument, and I think it's safe to say, Everybody Has a Dream is the least successful song on the album in terms of popularity. Why do you think it is that that's the one song that didn't catch on? I don't know, because honestly, when I was kind of exploring these two songs, I thought really Get It Right the first time was by far the inferior of the two. I thought Everybody Has a Dream was a nice enough song. You know, as a Billy Joel song, it's definitely a middle-of-the-pack song. Yeah. But I would definitely say it's superior to Get It Right the First Time, which 
to me, kind of sounds like a cheesy 70s Vegas lounge song. I mean, you could almost <laughs> smell the velour and brute aftershave. Um, <laughs> it, it, it sounds more like a Tom Jones song, which is kind of weird. And he's repurposed the oh, oh bit from scenes, which is kind of distracting. And it's kind of vapid lyrically. Like it could be the theme song to a Leisure Suit Larry game, which isn't what I think of when I consider, you know, Billy Joel. And I think it probably would have been fine on another album and, you know, not such uh, stark contrast to such amazing music. You know, everyone goes south every now and again. But I definitely would put everyone has a dream above that. And so I, I don't know why that one. Maybe it was just because it was the last song and you're just, you know, exhausted by so much greatness <laughs> that you can't get to the end of it. <laughs> what did you think? Well, I do agree with you on this. Everybody has a dream is the better song of those two. I think it's a good song. I just don't think it's at all commercial. It sounds like a gospel song. Kind yeah, of. very gospel, I agree. Yeah, and so I could just see, you know, it's a pop or a rock station, and this is in the day when disc jockeys had a little more say over what they were playing. How do you feel about playing this six-minute, 37-second gospel song with with backup vocalist singing in a gospel kind of way. How about that? Like, well, I don't know if that's right for me. <laughs> so I, I can see it struggling to get airplay, but I could also see it being a song that certain people would really, really identify with. Certainly. Well, I wanted to dive into one of my favorites, uh, which is She's Always a Woman. And this is a two-parter, so sorry, but <laughs> and you don't have to fire it back. But it's one of my favorite Billy Joel songs. And when I was young, I thought it was sort of had this sort of mystical element, sort of an, an enchanting feeling to it. And, and to me, I guess as I was as I was kind of listening through here, I thought that it was the closest overlap stylistically to Simon and Garfunkel that I could think of because I consider them very well I guess obviously Paul Simon's the writer but that uh, Simon and Garfunkel era you know it's gauzy and pretty but cold and that's sort of rare for Billy so do you see any similarity there yes I do and believe it or not I always felt that way and I'm very glad you said that in fact if you can imagine it heavier on the guitar and less on the piano it becomes more of a Simon and Garfunkel song. And it really, it makes sense. I can imagine Billy Joel, probably he was influenced by Paul Simon. Two guys from the New York area. Certainly. <laughs> but, you know, both of them influenced also by Bob Dylan. It just makes sense. And especially when you think about that song with the, the non-words, which I can wow all the listeners out there. I'm half joking. Those are called non-lexical <laughs> vocables. <laughs> when when you just kind of hum, mm. you can imagine Simon and Garfunkel harmonizing on those and it, in in certain parts of the song. I've Absolutely. thought, yeah, I've thought that some Billy Joel songs sound very Simon-esque, and sometimes even some of Paul Simon's solo stuff. I think has a Billy Joel flavor to it. You know, I'm wondering, since you asked that question, how do you feel about that? And for you, is it more of the melody that is Paul Simon-esque, or is it the lyrics, or both? 
I think it's the mood. I, I would say that, you know, Simon and Uncle did mood better than maybe anybody. There's this sort of haunting prettiness to Simon and Garfunkel that nothing else captures. And, you know, it's the harmonies, it's the music, it's the words. It's just sort of, you know, this sort of hazy shade of winter that's sort of all over everything that they do. And it's... As a young person listening to it, I was always just mesmerized. And so I I just compare very little to it. But when I was listening to it this time, I thought this was the only Billy song that I could think of that had that level of etherealness. And I think that, you know, the, the harmonies go a long way. You know, with Simon Garfunkel and Billy doesn't have that. So... I don't know. It's just it, it was a, it was a realization I had not made before. So I wanted to, you know, make a point of it for the the interview. And I also wanted to dive into the song thematically and, and lyrically because this is a little bit existentially askew, like a lot of Simon and Garfunkel songs are, which is a little different for Billy. He starts doing it more here but it's not his favorite place to go where this is conceptual rather than personal. Obviously this is roped into his own experiences, but what I kind of wanted to explore here with, with a guy with a lifetime of failed romances and had wrote so many songs about love and clearly is obsessed with the concept as beautiful as this song is, is the axiomatic bedrock Billy's laying down here that of a just out of reach God has come femme fatale concept of women, no matter how elegant or situationally exacting, potentially at the heart of his struggles to find long-term happiness in a relationship? Now, that's, a qu- that's quite a question. And possibly the first time I- I've ever heard God has come femme fatale but I do love it. <laughs> you could say that this this would also be known as putting her on a pedestal. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, but also sort of, it's a distancing too, right? It's, it's a right. pedestal, but it, there's a lot of fear there, right? There's a lot of, it, it, it's almost like it's not even, I feel like it's almost a depersonalization. And I think that's slightly problematic, even though, I completely understand to a certain extent most of the sentiments or I have felt those at least from, you know, time to time, but mostly when I was younger, mm-hmm. but also like, I just wonder if, right. I don't know if he ever got over that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think he's saying that although the woman in question, which he's commonly said it was about his first wife, Elizabeth, that, you know, at that time, maybe there was things about her that were considered traditionally masculine, like especially in terms of her business dealings. Elizabeth handled a lot of the things related to his career, and everybody said about her that she was this really shrewd businesswoman. She really had it together. And I think he's just saying, I mean, in in some ways, it's it's kind of, I agree, there's, there's, she almost seems like she's an ideal, like she, but out of reach, out of reach. She's a beautiful goddess. <laughs> yes. And he's saying like, for all these other people, 
they almost didn't see her as a woman because they thought of her as being what was at that time traditionally masculine in her approach. But I think it's really like just it's the ultimate respect that he has for her. He ultimately really respects her to the point it's very clear she's so much more than he is from the song. That's at least the way I see it. Certainly. (laughs) And I wonder, yes, if maybe that's something that has been an ongoing theme in his relationships with women. Because if you look outside of his relationships with women, it seems to be something that's prevalent with him, him not realizing his own value, his own worth. I remember when we watched the live concert from, uh, I forget which stadium in New York, but we were watching it together, and he was saying that he wanted to end the show with with a, a duet of him and Paul McCartney. And it was kind of like, I, I feel like he didn't feel like he was worthy enough. It, it seemed like not worthy. I'm not worthy to to be the last performance at this landmark, world-famous place where so many live events have been held. And it was kind of like, I remember thinking, okay, I understand the Beatles played here and everything, but this is still ultimately your show. It seems to be something that has followed him. I've heard him be so, so critical of himself. He said again and again, you know, I'm really not a good piano player at all. I can't play jazz like certain people. I can't play classical music like certain people. He's a great piano player. He's one of the best songwriters ever. But, yeah, it does seem that there's there's something that has followed him around that has possibly caused him to struggle with happiness, not just with his life, but also his relationships. What about you? Well, you know, looking through how many songs that are iconic Billy songs, including, you know, from this album, Just the Way You Are, and then I think he's got at least 15 that are Christy Brinkley songs. (laughs) You know, it's, I just always feel bad for the guy. He's always kind of sad. And I I could be, like you said, some sort of a psychosomatic issue where he doesn't think much of himself. I've read some of the same things where he, you know, there's nothing remarkable about what I do. And that that humility is a very excellent trait in someone so powerful. I think it probably kept him humble in a way that most people who have achieved the type of success that he's had. But, But I think that that deficit that drives him, you know, or at least that it did for a lot of his career to keep trying to improve, to do more, to do better, even though he had already arrived, probably made it difficult for him to fully invest in his relationships because it was a basically a bottomless abyss of energy that and talent he was pouring his time into that was unfulfilling, or at least it, it was never returning back to him some sense of accomplishment. And with that type of vortex, you know, might make your relationships a little more challenging. Hmm. Well, you did mention the song, Just the Way You Are. Very, very famous Billy Joel song, one of his most well-known and It's something that has resonated with so many singers. It's been done by a lot of people. And considering that his initial goal with his music, the first album, he was almost thinking of it like a collection of demos in a way, because he thought my success will inevitably be other people recording my work. Just the Way You Are was recorded by Frank Sinatra. 
he has often said that Frank Sinatra singing Just the Way You Are, if that was his only accomplishment in life, that would have been enough. But also, Diana Krall did it. Willie Nelson has recorded it. It's interesting to me because Billy's band at the time, they hated that song, <laughs> you know. And it's interesting because I've heard Billy Joel say some things about it that, you know, there have been times where he wasn't crazy about the song. Is the song a success to you? And why is the song a success to the general public and to these other singers? Yeah, I've always thought it's a great song. It's one of the earliest, billiest songs I can remember hearing. It's elevator music a little bit, so I understand why his band might not have loved it. Conceptually, you know, we all want to be appreciated and loved for who we are. And we spend enough time towing the line to societal standards in work and life, both real and imagined. And then the last thing we want to do is to come home to someone who is forcing us through additional hoops. That's heartbreaking, but a reality for a lot of people. This song is what we all want in the most intimate relationships in our lives, in the spaces where the most vulnerable, which I think makes it universally appealing. But, you know... What I can't not think about every time I hear this song comes from this Chuck Klosterman piece on Billy Joel, which I think I've read 50 times, in, in which he's kind of discussing Billy Joel's greatness versus his coolness. And his take on this song is almost all I can think about whenever I think about it. And it does go back to Elizabeth. But I want to read just a little bit of this because I think it's so interesting that I couldn't even begin to try to, you know, <laughs> sharpshoot Chuck on this. But Chuck says, to this day, women are touched by the words of Just the Way You Are, a musical love letter that says everything everybody wants to hear. You're not flawless, but you're still what I want. It was written about Billy Joel's wife, manager Elizabeth Weber, and it outlines how he doesn't want his woman to try some new fashion or dye her hair blonde or work on being witty. He specifically asks that she don't go changing in the hopes of pleasing him. The short-term analysis is that this is a criticism of perfection, but in the best possible way. It's like Billy is saying he loves Weber because she's not perfect and that he could never leave her in times of trouble. The sad irony, of course, is that Joel divorced Elizabeth three years after Just the Way You Are won a Grammy for Song of the Year. Obviously, some would say that cheapens the song and makes it irrelevant. I think the opposite is true. I think the fact that Joel divorced the woman he wrote the song about makes it his single greatest achievement. When I hear Just the Way You Are, it never makes me think about Joel's broken marriage. It makes me think about all the perfectly described love letters and drunken emails I have written over the past 12 years, and about all the various women who received them. I think about how I told them they changed the way I thought about the universe and that they made every other woman on earth unattractive and that I would love them unconditionally even if we were never together. I hate that those letters still exist, but I don't hate them because what I said was false. I hate them because what I said was completely true. My convictions could not have been stronger when I wrote those words, and for whatever reason, they still faded into nothingness. Three times I've been certain I could never love anyone else, and I was wrong every time. <laughs> those old love letters remind me of my emotional failure and my accidental lies, just as Just the Way You Are undoubtedly reminds Joel of his. Perhaps this is why I can't see Billy Joel as cool. Perhaps it's because all he makes me see is me <laughs> and you know the the immortal chuck right and but that's a perfect deconstruction i think of why billy's so good because mm -hmm. you just see yourself inside of these things for whatever angle that you want to take and you know i i just when you asked when you asked i just couldn't i couldn't not bring that up <laughs> yeah and I'm sure you've got your own take on the song, too. And I don't know if that had popped up, because I know you've read the same article. Well, 
of course, there's a, a a heavy shade of cynicism in Mr. Klosterman's words, but <laughs> nonetheless, it's very, very true that the thing of love is that it is such an intoxicant that in the moment of whatever, we can very, very much feel like, no, this is true, and it never won't be true, and there's nothing that can change that, and you think about Perhaps the girl you loved when you were in the 11th grade. <laughs> now you think about how you felt about her and the thoughts that were running through your mind. And you, you probably think it's comedy now <laughs> or, or it may be even be a bit embarrassing. But I think the song at its core, it's a success because it is true. As you were saying, it is what everyone craves the most absolute acceptance to be loved, to be seen. I can understand also, as you were saying, I thought you put the perfect label on it. There's something about it that does seem like this is every elevator song I've ever heard, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. But, you know, I was listening to the song. I was taking a walk. I had my headphones on, and I was thinking, wow, you know, I, I really, I'd never listened to it carefully because it was something I just took for granted. And the lyrics of the song, it sounds like Billy Joel is really just talking to the woman. You know, it, it rhymes and everything, and there's a pretty melody to it. But you could imagine a guy like Billy Joel standing or sitting across from this woman, maybe at a restaurant. And he's finally opening his heart up to her, and he's telling her exactly how he feels. And he's saying exactly the things in that song. So the fact that he was able to convey that kind of imagery of, you know, it's beautiful and it's poetry, but it's not overly flowery. It's really simple what the guy is saying. And so I think it succeeds on a commercial level, huge, in a huge way. And I think the song is a success. I appreciate the song more now that I've tried to analyze it. And, yeah, I, I think the song... And I understand also why these different singers like Sinatra and Willie Nelson, why they all decided to to sing it, because it does have that quality to it, that it feels so authentic. It feels like he wrote this thing down, he had a piece of paper, and whatever was in his heart and mind poured out onto the page. I agree. I was uh, shocked that that was the only song I think he ever won a Grammy for. <laughs> I could be wrong, but um, of all of his songs, I wouldn't have guessed it would be that one. Well, let's look at The Stranger itself, the, the title track, a little bit buried amidst some of the greatest songs of the 70s on one album. This song, like you said earlier, doesn't sound like any other song, which I think makes it exceptional. Uh, it's extremely complex and explores a sort of new twist in Billy's book. A slightly younger Billy that we've been going through so far is constantly looking far off into the future or to the immediate past. But with She's Always a Woman and The Stranger, these are philosophically existential in-the-moment explorations in a way he hasn't focused on before. Do you think that this change is part of his metamorphosis as a songwriter and part of why he's, you know, leveled a bit here. Hmm. My, my gut feeling is definitely. And I think he had dipped his toes in the water on the last album with 
writing songs that were less, you know, there, he had written a lot of songs before this that were, they weren't explorations. They didn't have a philosophical, not much of a philosophical vein to them. But then you look at an album like Turnstiles, he had a song on there like Miami 2017, which the writing was so much more abstract. And I think that part of this was maybe he had that already in him. Maybe he had been writing stuff like that, like The Stranger, perhaps. But he didn't feel like it was right because, as mentioned earlier, he didn't think I'll be recording these and be successful as a recording artist myself. So he was writing in a more commercial feel. He was, he was thinking, can I get this recorded? Now that he had found Phil Ramone as his producer, I think he started thinking, okay, this guy engineered Bob Dylan. This guy, this is a serious record man. I've got, you know, he had asked George Martin to produce this album. George Martin said no, because he said, I don't want to use your band, Billy. I don't want to use your band. Because at that time, it was very, the only time you used your own band when you were in a recording studio is if you were a band, if you were the Almond Brothers band or you were the Beatles. And so Billy was saying, no, I have my own band. I want to use it. I'm getting off topic slightly, but George Martin said, no, you need to use session guys. You need to use studio guys. Phil Ramone said, you don't know this guy. He, I'm telling you, this guy has something. I think it allowed Billy Joel to bring these philosophical kind of songs and these songs that are really atypical from anything you hear on the radio. The Stranger gets played on the radio, but is there any song lyrically that's quite like it? And I think that Phil Ramone gave him this courage he was free to express himself. It's a really interesting question that you asked, but, you know, I, I look at a song like The Stranger, and it makes me think, you know, it, it's something, it's very honest and very personal, but the thing about when you're very honest and personal, the more personal you get, somehow you get the most universal. So... What about you? Do you think that this change in writing style is a part of this metamorphosis, as you put it? The, what do you think? Certainly. When you look at the cover, I mean, he chose this as the name of the album. He's looking at a mask laying on his bed, which is a double entendre, I suppose, in that it could be, you know, you share a bed with someone else and you look at the mask that they wear. So, you know, because he's obviously talking about dealing with the stranger externally and internally, which that image captures well, because is it his mask or is it the mask of someone's with him or his masks in general? The way he's pondering it is fascinating because he's comfortable with it. He knows it's problematic. And yet, you know, the song itself sort of is we all have to sort of reconcile this and, you know, Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Uh, but I certainly think that his leap here is, is, a, is a more confident and experienced writer, but also a more confident and experienced human who has enough, you know, wear on the tires to start tackling larger issues uh, more from, you know, more head on instead of obliquely, 
which he had sort of done up to this point. So definitely, I think that is a part and parcel to why there's a leap here in the songwriting. Hmm. Well, one of the other songs from The Stranger, other than the title track, that I think is very, very atypical is Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. And it seems like, in a, in a lot of ways, this is a song that it shouldn't work as a successful rock song, and it, it shouldn't be on the radio. It's long. It's 7 minutes, 37 seconds. It's very different. And I don't know if most people would listen to it and say this is a commercial song. Why do you think it works, assuming that you do think it works, despite this lack of commercialism? I do think it works. It's one of my favorite Billy Joel songs. I love it. The yeah. first time I heard it, I was blown away. Like you said, it doesn't sound like much else. So it, it was uh, a wow moment for sure. I think the uniqueness of it helps a lot. The only other song I can even compare it to is Sweet Judy Blue Eyes by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. In fact, they're almost the exact same length. They're both working with three different movements or acts, and Sweet Judy's also sonically unique. You know, for long songs, seldom do we need to be bludgeoned by the same hook for more than four minutes, American Pie notwithstanding, I guess, which is why you're not going to get away with something almost eight minutes long if you're not changing it up a bit. And it also needs to be compelling enough for you to want to stick around, or at least, you know, if you're in the market for escalators to Valhalla. You might be there, but Scenes is kind of three songs woven together, which means it's not needling you with the same thing, and each piece belongs, fits the narrative, transitions smoothly, and when you hit the coda, you feel like you've been on a little journey, and you know, you get a little, get nostalgic for the beginning of the song. How brilliant is that? <laughs> <laughs> this song is a hat trick of nostalgia as well, which we discussed is a very strong recipe for success. As for the purely commercial question, how do you get this on the radio? I think it took me, because I grew up listening to oldies all the time, it took me until college to realize that Sweet Judy Blue Eyes was all the same song. Because when you're experiencing something on the radio, especially if you're doing something else, um, it's easy for things to just sort of run together. And I guess nowadays that's greatly diminished because there's not much radio. So pulling you know that off or another scenes is unlikely. But in the jukebox back in the day, you know it's a three for one special. So how can you how can you say no to that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what do you think? Pretty genius what you just said there. It is very much like these these songs brought together. And what I think about it is, it succeeds so much because it almost to me feels like. Although it has this rock and roll thing, the ballad of Brenda, Brenda and Eddie, as Billy Joel commonly calls it, it's the rock and roll part of it, you know? It kind of, to me, it gives them some royalty. You know, you see this, as he says, scenes from an Italian restaurant. And for whatever reason, I think he's saying that, like, to these two people, you know, it, it might be something that you walk by and you see people, they're dining outside maybe, and they're, maybe they're, the waiter is opening their bottle of wine for them, and it just seems somewhat commonplace. To the people that are experiencing it, it is this many-act play. You know, it's, 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 it has all these different things. There's, there's a bit of romance in there, and <laughs> it gives them, it almost makes them into legendary characters, even though they're seemingly they you know they're 
They're big at their school, but nobody knows them outside of that. And going back to what you were saying, it's just so unusual. I think that a lot of that probably had to do with Phil Ramone. He was very, very much into trying unusual ideas. To go back to The Stranger for a second, when Billy Joel was telling Phil Ramone about The Stranger, he said, I want this at the beginning, and he did the whistling. And he said, so we could get some instrument to play that. Phil Ramone was like, no, you're going to whistle it. That's what you're going to do in the studio. And he was so right. You know, when I listen to this song with headphones on, I really appreciate all the stuff that's going on. It's so unusual. You know, he mentions New Orleans and there's this little Dixieland jazz part where you hear the clarinet going. The song's right. got all that, tuba, clarinet, trombone. You know, it's got the rock part. It's got some accordion in it. It's got all these different things. If somebody came to you and said, I got this idea, I want this song, it's about these these two characters, Brenda and Eddie, and an Italian restaurant, and it's got these different acts, you know, probably most producers would say, hold, hold on, slow down, slow down. <laughs> but they said, okay, let's, uh, <laughs> let's see what we can do. I'm sure that it was very interesting to record that song. I mean, it's just, it's so... You know, it's grandiose in the way that Queen, uh, you know, <laughs> could be. And Oh, yeah, it's epic. It's definitely epic. I was trying to avoid saying that word, but, you know, there's <laughs> no other way of putting it. It's grandiose, it's epic, and it ends, and it's just like, here's the tale. The teller of the song, Billy Joel, at the end, it's like it comes back around. You know, and it's just, it's brilliant. It's just a brilliant song. I'm kind of with you. It's one of the best Billy Joel songs ever. And it's a success commercially and it's a success for me personally. And I, I just have one more question. What is your favorite song from The Stranger? Uh, that's not fair. It's hard. Yeah, it, it's, it's probably scenes. It, it's probably my favorite song, although I, I, I like so many of them. I love Vienna, and Vienna is interesting because it, it came in later to, you know, my worldview. So, I you know, it, it has some newness to it uh, that that I don't have as many reps with it. Oh, she's always a woman. It, it, it's so hard to pick. But, yeah, may, maybe scenes because to the point it's it's just one of a kind. Now, what's yours? I think it's probably scenes from an Italian restaurant. If you could make it a single, have the B-side as Vienna, which those two songs, it's, it's scenes from an Italian restaurant. The next song is Vienna. And it's just like you're, you're just catching your breath from the exhilaration. And then he plays Vienna. It brings you down, but it's like he's just knocking them out of the park. The album is halfway done and you're just thinking what a masterpiece so i think scenes from an italian restaurant but it's pretty close between that and vienna it's we are in agreement yeah yeah but a great album through and through absolutely well thanks for joining us folks we hope you tune in to the next installment volume six of it's still billy joel to me we'll be taking a look at 52nd street Recorded and released in 1978. Produced yet again by the late Phil Ramone. 
Jason, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. All right. Until next time. Goodbye.